Welcome to the 10K Collective podcast for six, seven and eight figure Amazon and e-commerce sellers, a part of the amazing FBA family. If you want to scale fast, target a seven figure exit and enjoy the process, then keep listening. Today's episode is sponsored by the new e-commerce podcast, The E-Commerce Leader, co-hosted by myself, Michael Vizi, and Jason Miles, top 1% Shopify store owner and Unimi's highest rated e-commerce instructor. If you're the owner of a thriving e-commerce business, look for The E-Commerce Leader on your favorite podcast app and subscribe today. Ladles and jelly spoons, boys and girls, welcome to the 10K Collective Podcast, the place for six, seven and eight figure Amazon sellers, particularly if you're ambitious to scale and sell your business. So if you are looking to sell, whether soon or at some point in the future, today's guest is the perfect person for that. So we're talking to Jim Mann from Thrasio. Um, he's the director of acquisitions and Thrasio is the world's largest acquirer of Amazon e-commerce brands. So the 800 pound gorilla in the space, as they say in the States. So Jim, warm welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. Good to see you. You too. So we've known each other for, for several years and, you know, various groups around the place in, in London, sort of England. And it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. And obviously, you and I know each other as, as Amazon sellers. So tell us a tiny bit about your background there. And then what we're going to plunge into today is what is this word aggregator mean? What are buyers slash acquirers and, and digging into, you know, what, what a seller should be looking out for. But tell us a bit more about yourself first. Well, as you know, I was, I was an Amazon seller until last year. I started in 2014, went full-time very quickly, discovered the opportunity that is Amazon FBA, got up to multi-seven-figure brand, and was having a great time until COVID came along. And my brand was a travel brand. So I last year, my sales tanked about 90 plus percent in a matter of four weeks. And I was left with a rather precarious few months ahead with, you know, seven-figure inventory stuck in FBA centers all over the world. It took a few months to clean the situation up, let the team go. I've given the brand to friends who are brand managers. And uh, long story short, I sort of had to think about what to do next. And Stephanie, who's one of the co-founders at uh, Thrasio, she's the COO, is in a mastermind with me, a bit like the one we used to have in London. And I reached out and said, look, you guys are a rocket ship. My, my business has been taken out by COVID. I was unfortunately in the, the one category, probably or the worst category when COVID hit. And uh, I spoke to uh, Stephanie, I spoke to the co-founders and and the various people in the, in the leadership team and I ended up landing here in the UK as head of acquisitions for UK and building a team with a, with a guy who's a good friend Sammy in, in Germany and we're building out Europe as we as we speak now. Amazing so yeah you've been really through the, the rapids like a lot of people last year I mean 2021 a lot of people have been going on about how amazing a year it was for e-commerce but like yourself in in various masterminds by the way another win for masterminds right just a small side plug that it's so important it's such a great way of meeting that's how we met that's how you yeah. ended up landing your current job that's how a lot of my clients are ending up getting connections and learning from each other it's such a powerful thing i, I, I would never have got my business to where i got it or have the, the position now at thrasso if it weren't for that investment in masterminds it's a, yeah. it's a must you can't you can't succeed i think on amazon without plugging into the right network yeah totally agree yeah by the way i'm biased but i guess you're not so yeah that's good yeah, good to hear yeah, that opinion yeah. but yeah i mean so you've certainly gone through the rapids and i've had clients who are also in the travel space and had horrific 2020 and as you say i mean some, one of the things that i guess we'll touch on in the sort of selling journey 
is external events forcing your hand and and that is a reality i guess and we need to kind of i guess we don't get to control external events but we control our response to them right and that's one of the things i think we need to dig into so obviously you mentioned thrasio so let's talk about thrasio i mean one of the the big things about it is of course we'll talk a bit more in detail about the difference between aggregators and whoever else is out there but just give us a, a quick view of why you were sort of drawn to thrasio and and the sort of nutshell of what they are as opposed to yeah any I mean, type of buyer or broker or something yes i mean my background pre-amazon I, I you know i lived as you know in the beach in spain i had a kite surf school but before that i had a kind of proper job in consulting and i just looked at what thrasio were doing i looked at the acquisitions team and for me i just i i you know when i spoke to the guys i said look i don't know much about MA. I don't come from an MA background in consulting i used to work a lot post MA, integrating leadership teams and the sort of you know, the leadership genocide that went in when one team tried to take out the other post-integration, but the sort of the financial side of the m and I didn't know a lot about. So I was just drawn to the fact that I know FBA really well. I know Amazon really well. I know the operational side of it really well. And I was excited to go and learn effectively a new career on the M&A side of, of the ecosystem, which I love, which is Amazon. So I can still be in the network talking to people like you but actually studying a career that kind of you know, just fires up the whole learning again, which is what got me. I, I loved that at the beginning of Amazon. It was just learn, 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 learn. And I'm back in that zone now. Where I'm just soaking it all up like a sponge, how this all works and, and really enjoying it. No, absolutely. I'm not, I totally hear you on the learning curve thing. And, that, and you know, like yourself, I like the learning curve of starting the, the brand new business model with Amazon. And I think that learning about M&A and how that works for being the sort of guy one step further down the chain, sort of trying to help my clients and who should they talk to, that kind of thing is, is very interesting stuff. So yeah, I, I, by the way, I had no idea that you had a background in consulting. It does make sense given the, the sort of calm reasoned way in which you think things through very british by the way i think you, you I, I love that about you i think you've got that sort of british gentlemanly way about you but also with a lot of gentle brains behind it some people like to sort of flaunt their knowledge but the fact that i didn't even know that you had a consulting background says a lot for your modesty so suddenly you shouldn't hide under your hat i think right. so obviously you got the whole package so you you, you got the consulting background leadership genocide does not sound like a fun situation no, post m a in, in large organizations it's brutal because yeah. it, it's literally it's very primal you have two leadership teams that have been brought together driven by a strategy around numbers and sort of economies and market domination but the reality is you're bringing two competing teams against each other and they know that a leadership team of 18 people will be down to 10 if they're lucky in the next six months and it becomes, it's brutal. I mean, trying to get those people to agree who should be that leadership team when they're basically taking themselves out or their favorite line managers below them because they know if they have the team below them taken out, that weakens their position. So it's a, it, and that's yeah. why a lot, a lot of mergers fail fundamentally because the leadership teams l lose sight of what their strategy is because it's all about survival and destruction. That totally makes sense, actually. Yeah, funnily enough, I've had conversations where my, my cousin's husband happens to be, he's in a news, like yourself, very sort of, um, man of of it's like a renaissance man he's actually got a phd in sort of literature which is how they met but he's actually now the ceo of a, a publicly listed company which kind of blows my mind and it sounds like a lot of it is managing politics <laughs> yeah. so anyway let's i guess this may become relevant to, as to you know what happens post acquisition but let's talk let's sort of dial it back then to the person like yourself in a position where you've got a business going well going badly and these are other questions to talk about mm. the first question we've got to ask is why sell because i guess there's a presumption that you should but i guess that needs questioning so so what do you think the reasons are that you can sell good and bad i think it's a very personal decision and it's all about timing i think 
There are a number of reasons. Some people set a number. I was I was a bit like that. I was kind of not enjoying the operation so much, but I was like, if I get to that point, I'll get out. So a lot of people put a number on it. Other people have a very clear vision for their brand and they realize they've reached a point of capability that they either are not capable or don't want to build a team to take the business to the next level. So the logical conclusion to that is to exit and let the brand grow in the hands of somebody else and then do a deal around that, that they share in the profit and the future profit of that growth. And there's a lot of people are just tired and they want to, they want to, well, actually there's, there's two more. A lot of people are tired and they just want to sort of, after a year like last year, they don't want to keep going at this pace and level of stress. And there's another big category of people, people that have learned what they've learned over the last two to five years. They have another passion project and they want to recapitalize and they want to take, they want to sort of de-risk their current situation and start again on another brand, another another project, but with the knowledge they have today, which they didn't have five years previous. So with the capital and knowledge that they would have dreamt of having five years ago. Those are the those are the most common reasons for exiting. Interesting. Yeah, that's quite different from what I was expecting. I don't know what I was expecting really, but that's that's very, very interesting. What I'm particularly interested in is what you were just saying about having a vision for the brand, but you either don't you know you're not able to do it yourself i mean lack of capital could be a thing but also don't want to build a team and it's very interesting i think that's a good self-knowledge point isn't it it's that some people are very very good at starting stuff which by the way i think is super hard Mm. um really hard and that's why i always take my hat off to people who've done it people like yourself but equally that doesn't mean some people are great at, at building things out People are often not. <laughs> Some people is really entrepreneurial and great with a tiny team can be lousy managers. I would certainly say I'm somewhere on the spectrum towards lousy manager. <laughs> I'm not saying we're great entrepreneur either, but you know, it's it's certainly a bit of self knowledge that one should have because I guess that the funny thing is you're separating also the idea of the brand that you kind of given birth to from the entrepreneur and their own brain themselves. I guess yeah. that sounds almost a bit like the sort of thing of giving birth and then bringing a kid up and then giving them away to a boarding school. It, it sounds like an emotional thing to me. I and mean, how, how does that kind of play out in your interactions with entrepreneurs? Yeah, I mean, the internal language at Thrasio is that, and for a lot of people is that we're basically being trusted with someone's baby that they've given birth to. So taking them through the journey of acquiring their business is actually acquiring their baby, you know. So it's not just about money. It's about why you guys, what are you going to do with my baby? Will it be here in a year? If it's here in a year, what will there be messaging around it? Are you really going to invest in it? And it's almost like a, yeah, it is very much like taking care of someone's baby because a lot of pain and passion has gone into getting to a business for seven or eight figures when they sell it. Yes. That doesn't happen without, without blood, sweat and tears. Absolutely. No, it's good to hear that you, you have that sort of internal language. I mean, the weird thing, because I've had so many conversations now with, with acquirers and, and brokers and quite a few business people, that I, business owners in the space that I wanted to sell. And weirdly enough, it strikes me that the whole decision to sell is way more driven by emotion than operations. And that, I guess it kind of makes sense when you really think it through, but it's just counterintuitive to me still. I just kind of think, yeah, it weirdly is a very personal decision. I mean, there will be some external things. Talking of which, though, I guess there are some sort of external positive reasons uh, why you may want to sell, and I guess particularly now. So what would you say those sort of more objective reasons are that you might want to sell? Yeah, I mean, this is going to sound like a bit of a pitch, but it is the reality of the situation right now. And we're going to touch on a few things here. The technology sector, forget aggregators and Amazon, you know, tech at the moment is is going for multiples that have never been seen before. And everyone's talking about a big adjustment coming downstream. Amazon, with COVID, has taken the lion's share of the uptick in spending online. So this, the result of that is that Amazon sellers have sold like they've never sold before. 
And with pricing, a lot of people are more, you know, I'm seeing P&Ls where people have put their pricing up by 20% last year. Now, that wouldn't have happened if it weren't for COVID. So you then come back to the aggregator environment. You know, Thrasio had this billion dollar valuation in August last year. I think people were, a lot of people in the industry were quite aware of what we were doing. But private equity really kind of pricked their ears up when they saw this billion dollar valuation and profitable two years from its inception. And as a result, you now have a lot of me too copycat aggregators coming in. And the consequence of more competition in any marketplace is people are willing to pay more. So you put that all together, massive COVID uplift, Amazon having a premium on it, competition to buy. And what frosts up to the top is some really good multiples for Amazon sellers to exit with right now. The question going forward is, is that going to continue? It's unlikely. I think there's going to be a honeymoon period right now. I think a lot of a lot of aggregators are raising a lot of capital and they have to spend that money because if they don't spend it, they lose it. So what we're seeing is some what I would describe as irrational multiples being paid in the marketplace. But that's great for sellers, provided the deal structure doesn't have an earnout, which doesn't have much credibility in it. But it's a really there's a possible once in a lifetime opportunity to sell an FBA centric business right now that may not have the same outlook in 12 months time. And that sounds potentially like a sort of quasi limited time sales pitch. It's really not. I mean, read up on what's going on in tech in general. And, uh, you know, it's frothy at the moment everywhere. And, and that's, it's even frothy in the aggregated marketplace. Yeah, well, it's very funny you should say that. I guess I always say that the best negotiation strategy often is the truth. And what you're saying is it may sound like a time-limited offer, but it is. It's not created by you or even Thrasio, big as they are. They kind of speeded it up and created a dynamic. But it's, as you say, the dynamic's bigger than that. There's capital looking for a home. It certainly isn't going to be putting it into the high street, or at least it hasn't been. That'll be another interesting thing. I mean, right now, for example, I probably invest in airline stocks as a growth thing for the future. But right yeah. now, operationally and, and sort of profit-wise and cash flow-wise, they are you know in terrible shape and same with hospitality. But you make a very, very good point about the dynamics of these things. And I do think that it's pretty obvious that if you've looked at the housing market in the UK or in Spain, indeed, with particularly uh, British expats buying in Spain, that was like a particular yeah. micro bubble, wasn't it? That was pretty yeah. severe. And if you look at, you know, anything from the South Sea bu- bubble where Isaac Newton lost his shirt all the way through to the dot-com bubble, there's normally what goes up must come down. So it's pretty obvious that you're, you're right. But I think it's obviously you have much more insight to that than I do. But yeah. it's kind of obvious to anyone that what you're saying is just true. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's not really much of a pitch. I mean, what about the other things that are maybe less kind of time sensitive? What sort of, if you like, evergreen reasons to sell? What would you say? I mean, be? again, these, these, these are just facts, whether you sell to us or anyone else. You know, there's the one time as an entrepreneur, especially in a fast growth business, that you actually put money in your pockets when you sell. You know, the caveat to that is if you've got good cash flow funding or you can put, push your your cash flow demands onto suppliers through payment terms, you might you might put more cash in the bank. But reality is the one time an entrepreneur actually benefits from all the hard work financially is when they exit. And there's all kinds of models, you know, online to show you this that, you know, and, and I talked to a lot of sellers and I had this with my ex-partner, actually. It's like, stop telling me how much we're selling and tell me how much we've got in the bank. And, you know, this is the, the hilarious thing for most e-com entrepreneurs who are experiencing hyper growth. They're pretty skint a lot of the time because all their money is being sucked into the business or they've got, you know, a reasonable amount of funding to fuel the growth, which is quite a scary thing. As I experienced last year, you know, my business tanked 90% in a month and I was sat there with a load of cash flow funding. So, you know, the one time you can actually see cash in your bank and genuinely relax is when you exit. 
and that's that's a fact pretty okay. famous fact actually because uh, particularly in the high growth business as you said but lest we forget an inventory-based business yeah. really different from running say a consultancy which i know you've been involved in and obviously i'm involved in right now and it's a bit more like property or something else just a lot of the, the faster you grow the more cash you need or as Werner Hans says growth sucks cash famously mm. the shoe dog guy phil knight founder of nike mm. writer of the, the book of the name shoe dog was pretty much personally broke until he went public with nike and then he made just crazy amounts of money overnight as yeah. people do when it goes public right so right. this is famously even the most famous example really always true and and i think that's one of those things that people need to wrap their heads around and i think actually if they're running a business in a mindful way they'll know this a lot of people around the sort of several six figure low seven figure mark i noticed just beginning to realize that like somebody voices just the other day and a must man is running he's doing i don't know about seven figures a year in, in in pound terms and he was saying yeah you really need to get quite big in order to pay yourself well i'm like yep glad you've realized that the penny takes a while to drop doesn't it and that's assuming yeah. that the business is going well and is not experiencing crazy times so i've heard a phrase i don't know what your knowledge of this is but i've heard something like 60 percent of the entire money you ever make from business will come when you sell i guess that's like how big is a piece of string what, what's your view on that sort of number yeah i don't have the hard numbers we need to get actually better at modeling this out for our sellers because it is a really strong pitch if i'm honest and i know a lot of the the brokers and guys they do they really home in on this because it, it makes it really gives you a hard and fast number that's quite compelling as a reason to sell but yeah i mean long, long story short the the one time you actually benefit from your from being an entrepreneur is when you exit yeah um, it's this is a brutal truth isn't it which which makes yeah. you reflect on the nature of what is it you're doing? Because so many of us get in. I was definitely one of them that, that are pitched into this as an alternative a lifestyle business. In other words, one, it's designed to give you cash flow fairly easily from mm. on which you can live and go and mm. famously sit on the beach with your laptop, which is a ridiculous idea. I'd rather get to the beach without my laptop. But anyway, but actually the reality I think is is really different. I think it's rather like investing in rental property. Most of us have wrapped our head around the fact that you make the money when you've paid the thing off and it's it's really yeah. an asset that grows in capital value it's not mostly about cash flow until you paid it off and then one day maybe you retire with 10 properties and i really think that people should view amazon businesses more in that light and i, I think this is part of the re-education process is like dude you're building an asset you're not going to get paid until you sell the asset and i think that's kind of the brutal truth with a lot of this stuff it's a similar mentality to i own a house in london therefore i'm worth two million pounds well okay yeah if you lived on the street or if you need to, I don't know, Bulgaria, and you sell your house, then you'll be worth, you know, 1.5 million pounds, but, or whatever that is in dollars, $2 million or something. But the reality yeah. is you need to live in that asset. And the reality is if you need to keep feeding the monster that's growing, the money's going to be wrapped up in inventory, right? And yeah, I'm correct. Sort of banging this point really hard because people need to really <laughs> know the nature of it, what they're, 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 they're earning and, you know, what the nature of the beast is they're running, even if they never sell. Anyway, so <laughs> yeah. we've banged on that one enough, but I do think it's an important message. If you get nothing else from this podcast, then learn what it is you're doing. Invest in a, in a fractional CFO or someone like that because um, mm. something is very common for a lot of sellers, even doing, you know, seven or eight figures, they don't really have a handle on the they, they can do a PL, but they haven't really got a handle on cash flow and they haven't really a lot of accountants don't really understand how to make sense of you know when you're on an omni marketplace omni channel it's very hard to pull those numbers in a, correctly so you know having good financial advice around your cash flow and then pushing those payment terms onto suppliers can transform a business 
absolutely amen to that completely and as it happens i'm building out a mini course i'm not an accountant nor do i play one on the internet but along with accountants i'm building out a mini course to work on exactly those things and really the obsession of it i'm calling it profits because that's what most people are focused on mm. which is a hell of a lot healthier than revenue but really sneakily it's about cash flow that's yeah, kind of what I might call it if, if people yeah. are willing to see the importance of it because it's everything like I mean get yeah getting that cash conversion cycle going yeah for me this is like sexy topic which is a weird thing to say but yeah I totally agree that cash flow thing is is just everything like if your cash flow is melting down doesn't matter what your profit loss is and also funnily enough you can't eat profit you can't pay the mortgage with profit it feels like you should be able to right but yeah that is totally and absolutely true so coming uh, back, any sorry, Michael, just on sorry, that. Um, any, any, you know, Amazon grew thirty eight percent last year or something like that. So even like if you if you grew by less than thirty eight percent, you're underperforming. Now, if you've got a product that's making thirty percent profit, which is pretty good, right? Just to feed that product, you have to put all your profit into feeding that one skew before you put another product on the shelf, before you've paid yourself a cent, before you've paid your PPC person or any other fees. So if you have a brand that's growing anything more than thirty percent. The only way you can grow your business is by putting more cash on the table yourself, get, raising money or trying to manage your cash flow through funding from your supply chain. And the guys that manage to push that cash flow into their supply chain can grow 100% without putting money in or taking the risk of borrowing money. That's it. It's so critical. And so many people find that hard to do. And if you're, you know, I'd say if, you know, if you've got a supplier that just won't do it and you keep on knocking the door and you're growing and they say, no, take a risk and go and find someone that will. You know, it's, it's transformational for most FBA businesses when you can find that cash flow. Amazing. Well, that's massive value already right there. And it, yeah, it's interesting. The numbers you just said, just to reflect on that so that we get that, that to land. So first of all, Amazon grew 38% 2020. If you grew less than that, you're actually underperforming. And I guess what it means is you're losing market share, right? You may have a lot more revenue than yeah. you personally had, but you're losing a percentage of the market to somebody else. Yeah. If you have 30% gross margin, very typical number, then if you're growing over 30%, you'll need that's just that money is just enabling you to grow which as soon as you say it makes absolute sense but it's it's a very sobering point um also taking a risk and finding a new supplier as, as you say actually in the end i'm more interested in the cash flow characteristics of the supply chain than i'm pretty much anything else now because mm. i just figure like actually that's the secret assuming your product is any good of course but so look talking of financials well, let's get to some more sort of by the way brilliant insight right there absolutely massive but let's let's move on to more sort of selling related number which is the whole thing of valuation right which obviously the traditional thing is that you have your trailing 12 months and you multiply it by a multiple 2.5 2.83 whatever it may be that starts to look like a very strange way of doing things where you have a really crazy year as you said when you have a you know income statement that looks like a sort of cardio monitor how do buyers such as thrasio account for that variability in say march 2020 to march 2021 statistics which is almost 100 percent lockdown in the uk yeah i mean we, we're in a funny position now where we're, we're passing on more businesses than we've ever passed before yet we're acquiring more than we've ever acquired before COVID's been really interesting because let's take some really extreme categories like home fitness. You know, it's very common to see brands that have increased pricing by 20%. And so they were operating at, say, 15 to 20% EBITDA, which is okay, good. And suddenly they're, not, they're nudging 40% net profit, which is off the charts. You know, it's dream, it's dream territory. And the very robust and challenging conversation you have at the table with the seller, who's had a trailing 12 months now, because we have just hit 12 months pretty much since COVID started, is 
that's not sustainable. And most will agree that's not sustainable. Some won't. But the bit that no one knows is how to normalise and remodel post-COVID. We've got no references for this. We know there's been a long-term behavioural change from consumers. We know Amazon's probably going to be where most of the money is, but we don't know when people go back to work, how much they'll go back to the gym. And will they keep streaming at home and using and buying weights and kettlebells and booty bands and all the stuff that's gone crazy in the last 12 months? So, you know, some sellers are convinced that they're going to keep at that price and life's going to carry on as normal. Those are the ones we have to just say, look, that's great. I hope, wish you luck. We can't agree with that hypothesis. Normally what we do is we look at pricing pre-COVID. We, so we normalize the price and we normalize what we think will be a post-COVID sales volume or demand. And we recalibrate the P&L and, and, and net profit for the trading 12 months based on those normalized figures. And it's very much a conversation with the seller because there is no real science to this. It's very subjective. And then what we're doing with a lot of deals is we are allowing to price as if as if the, the sales and profit curve continues, but we're holding back a certain amount in case it drops, a bit like an insurance policy. And if it continues, which we'll hope it does, we release that payment as if it did up front. And if not, as it drops as we're expecting it to do, we don't release the money but we've had a very robust and honest conversation up front. And that way we can go into any acquisition, having talked about it, you know, negotiated around it, talked about what if, what if, what if, build a deal structure around all those scenarios. And then we sign the deal and go for it. And then, you know, we throw our team at it and try and hit that top number. If it's achievable, we'll try and hit it. And if it's not achievable because it's not there, at least we've had an honest conversation around it might not be there. And therefore, this is what you can expect later. Yeah, that's great. And I think honest conversation is is one good word in this space. And and the other one is scenario planning, because I just think it's it's only honest to admit that you don't know where things are going. And if people like Thrasio, who have obviously you got you guys got some real MA experts, you got real mm. amazing financial people, you'd kind of have to, to to be able to raise the money you've had. Otherwise, it would just melt down. The SEO would be after you. What you call it sec or whatever all those guys yeah uh, it's a very scrutinized thing once you're raising a lot of money and to have the humility even with those experts in place to say we don't know what's going to happen is really important and i would just say that's probably true for pretty much anyone you're talking to in this space if they don't have the humility to accept and admit that they don't know what's going to happen next mm-hmm. and that they're basing what they're saying to you on a accuracy of prediction and people do that sometimes then I think you should walk away <laughs> from the conversation. I, mean, I, I make predictions, but I'm real clear about the fact that this is just my view based on what I understand for conversations like this and, and with sellers, my own experience. But we've all got to have the humility to know that it's not going to happen. I guess it comes down to that sort of, his, his name, Nicholas Nassim Taleb mentality of like, we don't actually know what's going to come. So what the next best thing is to prepare for any eventuality, more or less, right? Yeah, yeah It's interesting. You know, we've got like 700 people now operating Amazon brands and we've got Casey Gauss as head of SEO. We have an unbelievable team. I mean, like the dream team. So, you know, I back our team to perform to the top of what's possible with any acquisition we do. That I'm like, I can happily say that we will, if, if you see 100 million in next year, I'd back our team. I can, we can never guarantee it. But if, it, if it's a realistic expectation of 100 million in revenue, I'd back our team to be 90 to 100 million. And if we don't get 90, there'll be some big questions asked internally. So we go in, in any acquisition, we don't put an offer in unless we see significant growth and profitable growth. And if we don't see that, we walk away. And we only offer on 10 to 20% of the businesses we look at. 
for that reason. And it's also that reason we've got people like Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan now funding us because we have a track record of making acquisitions that deliver massive profitable growth immediately after acquisition. And that's like that's kind of I that that's my job is to try and find brands that we can do that with. Now the thing with COVID is that businesses have like done four X in the last twelve months, and some the operator might argue that's because they've done something and they've outperformed the market. And our analysts can can look at that because we can do really good competitive analysis. But a lot of the time it's a wave, and like you know we've all got lucky. Let's be honest. And it's a, collectively anyone. On Amazon, outside of certain niches, which I can tell you about, <laughs> they've ridden a pretty special wave in the last 12 months. And so we have to be careful on forward project- projections because there are a lot of unknowns that we'll, that we'll know. In, in a year or two's time, we'll be, there'll, be, there'll be enough data to re- remodel. But right now, I don't think there's a credible model of the future because no one knows what the future looks like in terms of demand or the economy. I mean, there's some, you know, we're back to the economy, the global economy, but there's some interesting stuff going on that is going to unravel i think in the next couple of years yeah it's interesting the whole thing of uh, the idea that and again this is nick and nassim talib one of my favorite thinkers he's, he's a funny kind of character full of kind of bile and venom against lots of people and yet a genius i think i mean he was another one of those people who put his own money on the line for years and looked like an idiot for ages and then because he was kind of in line with reality but not everyday reality he mm. looked like a genius and the, the truth is that he kind of was but in other words even the idea in the beginning of 2020 that you have a model that accurately predicts the future is clearly rubbish. But on January 2020, it looked like a rational thing to do. You know, in March, when we're recording this, 2021, it doesn't look rational anymore. But just because we could fall back into the trap of just because life looks calm, we think we can predict the future. We cannot because, for example, no. the oil price crisis really tested some of the, the early sort of airlines in the 70s. And yet the best ones survived. So Southwest Airlines famously survived you know just almost two years after it started operating a 4x hike in gasoline prices which is kind of intensely difficult for an airline and yet they had 30 straight years of profitability why because they were very defensive and again we're getting into more general business strategy but i guess it kind of shows up when you try and sell something in a number right so uh, it becomes quite concrete so let's talk a little bit more about the the, the whole how to sell thing so obviously we've talked about types of of buyers so there's buyers who directly buy and brokers and i suppose then aggregators are the special type of buyer so just tell me first of all let's deal with this word aggregator and what's the difference Mm. between a buyer a broker and an aggregator in your in your opinion yeah i mean the aggregator word wasn't crazy by thrasio there's a guy called richard i can't think of his surname but 101 commerce you've probably have you heard the story richard was 101 commerce were the first guys to come up with a very simple idea which was if you if you bought uh, 101 $1 $1 million profitable Amazon FBA brands, you had a $100 million uh, business, the mo- and probably the most profitable and fastest growing e-commerce business on the market. Really simple idea. So they then got to about 20 acquisitions and discovered that when you have 20 acquisitions under your belt, you might have 30 or 40 seller center accounts operating in six languages, and each account has several PPC structures, and they realized that 20 accounts actually becomes incredibly difficult to systemize and operate. And the hypothesis was quite quickly sort of torn apart. So, but they were onto something. And Josh and Carlos, who founded Thrasio, and the, the, you know, that's how we started, buy a few brands, systemize, and through through scale, you know, and efficiency, build something that, that other people don't have. And fast forward now, two and a half years, and we've got 700 people. We closed last year on over $500 million in revenue. This year we're on target to $1.3 billion in revenue. And 
you know, the data that you have when you have a, you know, 15,000 SKUs and the breadth and depth of caliber of people you have when you've got a team of 700 people operating, you know, anything from SEO to creative to video to Snapchat, Instagram, Google, Facebook, Amazon, PPC, and you have all of these teams with, with depth of caliber, that's when an aggregator suddenly is much more than just an Amazon operator. It's next level. And, and that's, that's what the aggregator model brings in terms of growing brands they buy. Now, that's only interesting as a seller because most aggregators, when they buy, will have a, an earnout structure. So, you know, when you're choosing an aggregator, you want to make sure that the aggregator has a track record of profitable growth, because that means that you can take an upfront multiple and double it or triple it quite credibly over the two-year earnout period. So that's aggregators, very simple model, picking brands that they think they can operate well, putting them in with their team and scaling them. You've then got brokers. Now, the broker um, value proposition is we will help you prepare your numbers and we will take you to market and not only find the right seller for you, but will effectively create a bit of a frenzy around your brand and try and get you the best price for your business that you wouldn't get by doing it on your own. And selling on your own, the other thing I'll say, you know, you have you have to speed date. It's called speed dating when you meet like 15 sellers and they try and sort of take a lot of the pain and the stress out of that process. So the value proposition is we'll charge you a big chunk of money, but we'll pay for ourselves by getting you more money for your business and we'll take the we'll take care of the numbers and the speed dating for you. And then when you get to a certain revenue level, you, private equity start becoming interested. And you're looking at businesses doing sort of 10, 20, 30, 40 million. And we're competing at that level. There's very few aggregators that are capitalized to buy businesses doing 100 million. In fact, I think probably Thrasio might be the only one. You know, a lot of the aggregators are focused on the one to five to 10 million revenue businesses. And private equity will often have more of a roll-up model where they'll ask you to stay on. They'll pay you up front. But the difference is they'll ask you to stay involved in the business and running it for a couple of years. They'll roll it up and then they'll sell it again for a higher multiple two years down the track. Great when it works, doesn't always work. And you can imagine when you have private equity sitting at your management table now, you know, sweating you for every penny, then it's not always a particularly nice experience. And I don't, th it takes a certain character to succeed in that environment and enjoy it. But, you know, a lot of people go into it because they, they just, the, the, I think I've said to you before, it's like when you put your house on the market and you bring three agents to your house and they all, and your house is worth about a million quid. And they normally come in and one will say it's worth a million, one will say it's worth 950, one says it's one million and fifty. And then Foxton's walk in and they go, no, 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 we'll get you one and a half for this. And you're like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but your heart goes, maybe yeah, they can. And, and that's kind of a lot of that happens in our world. There's a lot of, how do you put it? I mean, yeah, people... It's all about numbers, but there's a huge amount of emotion and people's emotions can get played for what are potentially very inspiring numbers. But the journeys are hitting those numbers in reality for an exit are not always as easy as they're portrayed to be. Hello, folks. Well, I'm glad to have had a chance to finally introduce you to Jim Mann. Jim's been a friend of mine for several years and a really a true English gentleman is the way I would categorize Jim. And in a world of sort of half-truths and exaggeration that we get with the Amazon space, and then particularly, it has to be said with people who are talking about buying and selling Amazon businesses, that's very reassuring to me. I think that matters. So Jim's Good, good kind of guy to, to guide us through it. Obviously, you got a very big background in Amazon selling, being a personal friend through that network of people in the UK, and uh, also obviously now learning a lot from Thrasio. As obviously talked about why selling, 
very personal decision. I think it strikes me that it's not quite like being a parent, but I guess it's a bit more like being a coach or a teacher or somebody that is helping somebody in part of their stage of development. And at some point, if you really care about a person, I guess you hand them over to somebody else who can serve their, the next stage of their journey if you don't feel able to do that. I've done that with you know certain musical instrument teaching, for example. That might be true for sports coach. And I guess maybe in a similar way, it could be true for a, a business owner who sense that their business could go a long, long way, but they don't have the time, the expertise, or frankly, the money to, to do that. So selling now is a pretty great decision in many ways if you're going to sell at all because the multiples are going crazy. So Amazon's taken the lion's share of the uptick in online selling. Prices have gone up. Multiples are very, very high. And aggregators may actually find <laughs> that doesn't work so well in the future. So Amazon isn't getting any easier. The tax and political landscape is getting much, much harder. I was speaking to a client this morning who's just starting out, but I was talking about expanding. She's importing into the UK from India. And she's talking about expanding to Europe and Germany. And you know, even a year ago, I'm talking in April 2021 now, that would have been a pretty straightforward move, although there would have been a sort of Damocles hanging over it. But now it's just really complicated because the political landscape has changed. And the same would have been true if you'd been talking about importing from China to the USA prior to whatever, 2017, 2018, when that landscape changed as well. So it's not getting easier. And that's one reason why if you've got an established business, it kind of adds to the value of it because the people coming after you are going to find it harder. So that could be a reason to consider leaving as well. Other points that really struck me get a CFO and most people don't have a handle on cash flow. So I, I really think that that's a really excellent advice. Get a, if not a full-time chief financial officer or financial director FD, as we would call it in the UK, at least get a fractional CFO. In other words, somebody who can come in and work on your business maybe once a week, maybe even once a month, but get a handle on the numbers. Uh, I can't stress how important I've seen that to be for operating businesses, but Jim's there to tell you that it's so important if you want to sell your business as well. Valuations, interesting. I mean, we, we talked about that, the renormalizing thing, surprising so pricing in this sort of COVID bump that's happened for a lot of people. And uh, yeah, the, generally speaking, value in the business is an interesting one. <laughs> Timing has obviously had a big effect on things, but overall, it, it's one of those things where, again, I guess if you've got a good handle on the finances, you're going to have more of a handle on the actual value of your business rather than some kind of feeling in your heart, but because you put blood, sweat and tears into it, that it's worth more than it possibly is, I guess. Anyway, so that's uh, my sort of few takeaways from today. Next time, we're going to talk about more of the selling landscape and who to sell to, what an aggregator is and what the difference between them and other types of people like brokers. We're talking about the perception in the marketplace that aggregators are going to offer only a, a terrible multiple. That may have been true a couple of years ago. I think that's shifting now. What to look out for with aggregators as well. And so those are the upcoming things in the next show. Please listen out for that. If nothing else, Jim has been around the block as a seller and now from the buying side. So very worth listening to and learning from. What I always say to my clients is what I'm going to say to you now, which is always at least talk to experts. You don't have to sign any paper. You don't have to agree anything. But you, you if a lawyer will talk to you for free, if an accountant will talk to you for free, and if an aggregator or other form of business buyer or broker will talk to you for free, I would definitely have those conversations because those are people whose opinions are valuable. They're highly educated. They're normally expensive. You have to actually buy their time. 
And it's going to inform you a huge amount about your business, even if you never sell your business in your life. So I would think brokers and aggregators are right up there for me, for people you really, really should be talking to. You don't have to sign your life away. You don't have to agree anything. But those conversations are really going to educate you. I hope that today's episode has been part of your education. If you found it useful, I'd really love it. Of course, if you could just give some love back by going to, I guess this idea works on Apple Podcasts and giving us a rating one to five stars. And if you can write a review, that's even better, of course. But either which way, don't forget to subscribe on your podcast player of choice. And I will keep trying to produce this work that uh, will help you be, uh, you know, a six, seven or eight figure seller that is growing either to scale to a wonderful eight figure lifestyle or to have a seven figure exit. Thanks very much for listening. Speak to you in the next show. Thanks so much for listening to the 10K Collective Podcast, part of the family of amazing FBA podcasts. Today's episode is sponsored by the new e-commerce podcast, The E-Commerce Leader. The podcast is hosted by yours truly and Jason Miles, multi-million dollar Shopify owner and Unimi's highest rated e-commerce instructor. If you're the owner of a thriving online business and you want to become the best e-commerce leader you can be, it's got your name on it. For free guides and mini courses on many topics, go to www.theecommerceleader.com.